Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I am bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, uh, like one of the, uh, I don't know, there's no way, a stand-up comedian, an actor, a musician, but someone that produced something that has affected my life so profoundly that I'm going to say it's the the best movie I've seen this year. Would you call it a comedy special a movie? Anyway, we'll talk about all this in one second. Whitmere Thomas is on the show today, and you may have seen him on The the Walking Dead, on Glow, and all these sorts. Like, you know, he's been in a, a bunch of things over the years, but if you have not seen his The Golden One special, I implore you, just just hit pause on this. Uh, if you have uh, if you have HBO or access to HBO or a friend with HBO that's giving you their account during this time or whatever, whatever, however you have to see this thing, see it. It is, I, I did not know what to expect when I saw it. My brother just recommended it to me. I saw it and oh, wow. I, I can't believe I'm rambling this much in the introduction. I normally ramble as we get into the show a little bit, but I, I can't say enough about this Golden One special. It is really that good. Anyway, more on that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook page uh, and an Instagram page. All of those are run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire and comedy special recommender extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, I love you so much, buddy. Um, And I really appreciate all the work you do. Thank you very much. If you want to get in touch with me, you can head over to the uh, Instagram and Twitter pages at Left for Damien. I'm really trying not to check them as often these days because of everything that's going on, but I do check them. So please send me a message there and and I will try and I'm going to try and make a point of communicating better over those things, too, because I know we all need to communicate more now. You know, this this kind of uh, type of uh, reaching out and and and, you know. Getting someone to, to answer back is, is extremely important right now, and I recognize that. So I'm going to try and, and do better on that front. Um, and if you would like to support the podcast, the best way of supporting this podcast is by telling everyone you know that you love this thing and that we're doing it out here. And by uh, subscribing to it and rating it, if you can, on your platform of choice. Um, but yeah, just 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 listen now. You know, just don't worry about anything else. Um, if you if you have some extra money and you want to, we do a Patreon where we do footnotes and all sorts of other fun stuff over there. So you can check out uh, turnoutapunk dot com slash Patreon. And uh, if you have if you have some extra money, because right now I know things are a little weird, definitely a little weird. So I can completely understand. Um, speaking of support, though, this show would not be possible with the kind, loving support of Vans. Uh, Vans came aboard a few years ago and said, "Do what you do," and uh, they've recently come aboard again so i really appreciate them uh doing that and uh that's it i think yeah that that's that's it for the that side of the show um uh, you know i hope everyone's doing okay right now it's a weird situation it's only getting a little bit weirder but you know we're here we're here we're we're, we're appreciating what we have we're looking around and realizing that we're going to get through this and uh yeah when i say we i mean me and my family because we are now one unit <laughs> we live together all the time and you know, I'm sure you can relate to that. So anyway, let's go to something that we also can all relate to, which is a need for an escape once in a while. And today we are going to be talking to Whitmere Thomas. Now, if you are not familiar with Whit, um, I, I've got to be honest with you, I'd seen him in things, but I was not familiar with him until I saw this special. And once I saw this special, I, I, I became a bit obsessed. You will hear this on the show. I'm a bit of a fan now. Uh, this comedy special, it, yeah. 
see, I lost my mom, as many of you know, because there's episodes about it. I talk about it pretty openly on this thing a few years ago. And to be honest with you, ever since then, you know, I've, there's definitely been things I've watched and things I've enjoyed, but it's, it, I don't know, I, it was different, you know, it was, it was really different, especially something that dealt with anything kind of serious and especially something that dealt with the loss of a parent. You know, I just, it just wasn't my kind of entertainment. And, you know, I come to entertainment for a bit of an escape sometimes, like all of us do. And yeah, I wasn't able to escape that way. And so my brother recommended seeing this comedy special. I don't even think he hit me to what was going on in it too much. Um, he just was like, you got to check this out. This guy's punk. We should get him on the show. You're, you're really going to love this thing. And so, you know, begrudgingly, I threw it on one night with Lauren. And as soon as we kind of realized what it was going to be about, she's like, are you sure you're okay to watch this? And I, I was even by that point, like, no, I, I think I need to watch this. And I watched the whole thing and, uh, you know, I, I laughed a lot, definitely laughed a lot. It's a comedy special. I, I shed some tears. <laughs> I really did shed some tears watching this thing. And it's not just for people that have lost a family member. Like it's just for, I don't know, just anyone that, that kind of deals with expectations and, and deals with, um, you know, and those are self-imposed expectations too, obviously, or anyone that deals with, uh, with loss or anyone that's dealing with, uh, a, a disconnect with, um, the people they grew up with, it, everyone should see this thing. I really cannot recommend this enough. Um, so I'm not going to yammer on anymore. We go into a lot more details about all this stuff in, in the episode with wit. Um, so yeah, that's it. I'm just going to let you sit back, relax and enjoy Whitmere Thomas on turned out a punk. Wit, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, pal. Well, I'm going to break down the fourth wall, and I had a recording hiccup two seconds ago, and so we're doing this again, uh, <laughs> and I'm going to subject you to this awkward introduction one more time. I promise it's the last time. But... Dude, I'll take it. I love it. I love hearing it. Okay, well, that's good, because now you've heard it three times. Uh, <laughs> but uh, honestly, when uh, my brother came to me and was like, you got to check out this comedy special, I was resistant, because, you know, like... I, I just, I'm not, I don't always identify with stand-up specials. I find stand-up live is so different, but your thing is, you're the, the special you made, the, I don't know, it's so much more than a special. It's legitimately the best thing I've seen without hyperbole film TV show in, in years. And it hit me in a really profound way. And hearing you talk about punk on that, it just made perfect sense to invite you on the show. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks, pal. And uh, it, it's very cool that uh, you reached out and we have, we have like a, a connection that you don't even know um, exists, which is I used to be in a sketch group called Power Violence, which uh, I'm aware of the genre Power Violence. And I was before and we just thought, oh, it'd be funny to call a comedy group Power Violence. And then what ended up happening is we um, alienated a lot of true fans of the Power Violence music <laughs> and uh, they hated us. But uh, but yeah, we used to be in a, a sketch group and we would play um, – Son the Father by that's the name of that song, yeah, right? Yeah, absolutely. Song. Yeah. By y'all. And because it has this flute intro, or it's that's flute, right? It's our it's our drummer's mom playing it on the record. <laughs> no way. Yeah. Oh wow. That's cool. Yeah, so that has that long flute intro. So we would turn out <laughs> all the, the lights in the theater and it'd be pitch black dark. And that intro would be playing and then we'd be screaming and freaking everybody out. And then right when the song would kick, the strobe lights would come on and we would throw toilet paper at the crowd and, and it was uh it's so as soon as like i figured out that yeah you wanted to do this i was like holy hell i gotta do it <laughs> <laughs> i gotta see video of this this is like uh, that might be one of the greatest tributes our band has ever received i think <laughs> yeah. yeah man it was uh i i wish that there was video i'm sure somewhere there is video of this we did it all over the place we did it all over the country that's amazing we owe you probably like $22. Well, you know, I, I owe you for the, uh, the, the laughs and the, the tears on the comedy <laughs> special. So we'll call it even, you know? Thanks. Well, <laughs> well, thank you, dude. Um, I got to, though, start this thing off the way they all start off, which is, wait, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Yes, I do. Uh, my brother playing Bro Him by Pennywise. <laughs> yes! And I don't know, probably right when that record came out which was mid-90s, I, I guess, Yeah. Um, in the back of uh, my mom's car, listening to that. 
And uh, my mom loved it. She loved that chant. And she loved the bass line. And my, it just was a truly, it was like life-changing. It was a life-changing yeah. moment. I remember, it's the perfect punk song for like a, I think I was like a kid. I was like seven, six, seven years old. That chant, you know, I just loved that. And um, then my mom was like, oh, you like that? You like that? You know, she was a musician. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I love that. And she was like, oh, my God, maybe we have a bass player in the family. Because <laughs> <laughs> that bass line, she always wanted me to be a bass player. So she got me a bass guitar and taught me how to play that song. Uh, she figured it out and then taught me that bass line. And it was a game changer. Oh, that's amazing. No, that is definitely, you know, from the from the epiphat genre, I think that's like the the anthem. That yeah, I mean, could you imagine that got a that, it's truly tragic circumstances? That song, yeah, it's got to feel good to come out with something like that. Well, there's also because they did release it twice, right? Like they released it the first time in '91, and I think the time you would have been hearing it was was when they did Brohim '98, which was in tribute to the bass player who had who had passed yeah. away. Yeah, and that's the one that I prefer. Mm-hmm, me too. Is, uh, the guy hops on stage and sings the second or third verse or he's like jason my brother this was yeah like his voice cracks and yeah it's it, i just think it's incredible it's it's amazing too when you listen to that because like obviously that that band and that genre gets a lot of dismissed outright mm-hmm. by a lot of punk fans like probably the same people that were offended that you called your night power violence um, right or your, your true power violence but like at the same time, like that is like one of the purest emotions I've heard on any recorded song ever. When his voice breaks, when he says that, like, uh, like it still sends shivers up my spine. Yeah, I have full body chills right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same like goosebumps. It's like it's it's definitely like that, and especially as a young person to kind of hear that when when everything else you kind of hear is just so prefabricated, it's just that cuts through. Yeah, man, so cool, so cool. So I noticed also your mom's music, like, you know, it's obviously not punk, but at the same time, it is got a, kind of got a new wave kind of inf- informed to, vibe to it. Like, was it, yeah. did, did you grow up around that kind of stuff in the house? Yeah, dude, my mom. So like when my mom was in her 20s, she was all about getting out of the South, you know, mm-hmm. from Alabama. She ran away to L.A. and Aspen and New York and lived in Jamaica for a long time with her twin sister and. She, they they wanted to um, distance themselves from that. So and and that was around the time of like the synthesizer and the drum machine. So a lot of their early recordings are very new wave, like synth heavy songs. And uh, yeah, in the later eighties, mid to late eighties, they moved back to Alabama, and their songs kind of went kind of back to being more traditionally kind of country pop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you have any of the recordings from the new wave stuff? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, that's I got amazing. One. There's one on YouTube called "He's Hot." Oh, I definitely. I know he's hot. He's hot has become a uh, <laughs> a, a, a very favorite YouTube view of mine since then because it is it is super catchy. Yeah, dude, it's incredible. It's and incredible. That, and I had no idea. Like, I found that in in the comedy special that you can see that me and my aunt are looking through old master tape recordings. Yeah. yeah. So that's the first time I had ever seen any of that stuff. I thought it was uh, ruined by Hurricane Katrina. That's what my uh, mom told me, at least. And But my aunt had saved some of them. And so when I got back to L.A., I digitized. I saw if, like, I, you know, I asked somebody if they could digitize them and see if they were worth, if they were salvageable. And they were like, yeah, dude, this is two-inch tape. Like, these things are indestructible. <laughs> so I have all of them. I have all of her songs all the way back to 1975. Wow, that's amazing. So she, she was – what was her stuff early, early on, like like back in 75? It's her just playing acoustic guitar and mm-hmm. with her sister and and uh, kind of just like kind of folk music. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, then they, they go to Jamaica and they become like super into reggae and in a very embarrassing (laughs) to listen to kind of way sometimes doing like a fake jamaican accent uh they were just they're they're foreshadowing uh you know california ska punk oh dude totally and dude oh my god when i got into ska it was like my mom loved to drive around listen to listening to less than jake and stuff (laughs) she really and there's like a couple really kind of more reggae focused no effects songs my mom was like this is it this is so good (laughs) 
No, I was just going to say, but yeah. So like something that's kind of funny and uh, is, um, so I found these demos, right. Mm -hmm. And hopefully everybody, I'm going to put out all of these songs, like the ones that I think she would have liked people to hear at least in the next couple months. But like, there's one demo called Southern girl. And I remember the song Southern girl. I remember watching her band play it as a kid. And it's talking about how you're, she's a Southern girl. She loves being from the South. No matter where she goes, she's always going to be a Southern girl. But then I found a demo, right, mm -hmm. from the late 70s called Southern Girl. And it's the same melody, same mostly everything, except it's talking about getting out of the South and not wanting to be like how the South hangs over her. And she's, she doesn't want to be represented by the South because she's, she's cool and she's like a – she wants to be a big city girl. And it's kind of funny. Like it's almost – it's kind of sad in a way. It's like uh, the second version is her kind of – accepting it and sort of going, giving up and, you know, in a, in a way, or you could also say she's accepting it and, and, uh, owning it, you know, but just depends. What an amazing thing to kind of come into of all that kind of stuff. Like to, to just be, have that kind of window into her growing up. Oh dude, it, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy. It's like, uh, hours and hours of, you know, my mom is like a 20 year old. Yeah. It's like, goofing off in Aspen with her sister and like recording it, you know? So it's cool. I'm really lucky that, that I was able to get that stuff. Uh, have you ever thought about putting anything out on vinyl or did they actually ever put out anything on vinyl back then? No, they didn't put anything out. I'm like, they were really mismanaged and there was a lot of like tragedy around them. And you know, my both with drugs and death and all this kind of stuff. And so by the time they were in their mid twenties, it was kind of a wash. Mm -hmm. And, uh, my mom's husband went to prison for drug smuggling and she sort of didn't know what to do. She had, she had had one brother of mine who died and then my brother who, and then, you know, is still around and I'm very close with. And then my aunt sort of wanted to get away from that whole scene and she moved back to Alabama. So they're like professional dreams at that point were put on hold. So you got to do a he's hot seven inch for record store day or something. Dude, I'm gonna. I, I've got a whole. <laughs> I want to do like these great, this like new presentation of demos and music videos and stuff. Like, I'm gonna figure out some cool stuff. That's awesome. Well, I guess going back to that that faithful Pennywise car ride. Um, had your brother been into punk rock stuff before that, or was that his first kind of discovery too? Uh, yeah. You know, my my brother was like, he's a surfer skater guy, and. He loved uh, – he's a really good guitarist, so he loved like the blues and I think got into skateboarding and then through skating got into, you know, Screeching Weasel and, and Pennywise and Blink-182 and those kinds of bands. But and, and that's like really where he found himself, I think. Mm -hmm. And he was in a cover band called Toxic Toothpaste <laughs> and I would go see them play and – go into the mosh pit and nobody would push me because I was a tiny child, but <laughs> yeah, it was cool. What kind of covers would they do? They did Damn It by Blink. They did uh, My Right by um, Screeching Weasel and then they did Bro Him and I'm sure they did some other ones. I think they did M&Ms by Blink-182 as well. I think you just described my perfect set list. <laughs> <laughs> like really, that like honestly, that like those are like, especially I love that song by Screeching Weasel is a rager. Yeah, man. So good. And anybody can play it. It takes like one minute to learn how to play that song. <laughs> it's a good one to cover. Uh, yeah. Where were you guys hearing music at this time? Was it mainly through like MTV or was there cool radio or? No, man. There is nothing. It was yeah. like in Alabama, there's, I mean, if I saw Ruby Soho on MTV one time <laughs> and like just like walked into my, the you know, TV room and it was on tv and my brother was watching it on like 120 what was it called 120 TV? minutes i think yeah yeah and i was like holy shit and you know and then um other than that there's nothing on the radio it was go to a you go to a cd shop like an hour away and whatever um album cover looks kind of punk <laughs> you just buy it you know so that's that's what i would do were there any bands that were kind of coming through town around then uh, no, not really, man. It was yeah. like, um, I guess when I first, when I got a little bit older, when I hit like 13, um, 
some, I, we started going to Pensacola. My brother would let me go with him, which was an hour away from where I grew up. And mm-hmm. my first show was, um, the suicide machines and catch 22. The ska punk super bill. Yeah. Yeah. And that was really cool. And I saw strike anywhere a bunch of times. They would always come through. Um, and against me lived, but not too far away. So they would come through. So I saw, I saw against me when their drummer didn't even have a drum set. He was like playing on a bunch of shit, just like bullshit. So, um, and then there was a local band called this bike is a pipe bomb. Oh, they're from uh, Alabama. Yeah. Uh, they're from Florida, but oh, from Florida, yeah, absolutely. Right on the line of Florida and Alabama. So, so that was like a very special time, like the beginning of, of the scene. It felt like, you know, mm-hmm. It's funny because I've had a bunch of people on from from Florida over the years, but more recently, and it's it's amazing how because that was so skipped over by touring bands for so long, how it forced kind of like a real unique scene to develop. And when it finally exploded, like the time you're talking about, like you had bands like Against Me, you had Dashboard Confessional, you had Asuk, you had like it was just yeah. so much different stuff coming out of the state. Yeah, man, it was. Um, my brother went to see. Actually, he was like, "We're going to see Further Seems Forever," and I, I wasn't allowed to go. But he went, and um, he was like, "It sucked." Chris Caraba quit. <laughs> it was like like the week that he quit the band for Dashboard or something like that. And you're like, "Why did he quit?" And my brother's like, "Some fucking band called Dashboard." <laughs> Dashboard Confessional. I was like, "No." <laughs> but uh. Yeah, dude, and and the scene eventually, you know, I started playing in bands, and it was crazy. We would be on the bill with like a power violence band, a folk punk band, uh, just a, a traditional ska band. You know, mm-hmm. there was because there wasn't enough bands for there to be like little niche scenes. Yeah, no, it's funny because like you talk to someone who grew up in in New York, you know, or someone who grew up in Los Angeles, and there's like so much more of that. Like, you know, you could be in like, oh, I'm into this one specific subgenre only, but everyone else, it's like, no, nah, I was just in a general alternative music. <laughs> we had to all pool our resources to make a scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's really lucky, I think, that, you know. Were there, like, you mentioned playing in a band. When did you start playing in a band? I started playing in a band that would actually go out of town and play shows when I was in ninth grade. So I was 14. And what was the first band called? Oh, the first like real band that, that would actually go out of town was called, um, say your last. And we were very much like an emo, emo band that went on to like evolve through all of the genres of, Emo and screamo and hardcore and grindcore and metalcore and whatever, whatever it would be, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, what's where were you kind of getting into stuff as this, you know, these transitions are taking on? Is by that point, I guess, downloading was kind of starting, and yeah, you know, sadly, Alabama was still pr- pretty behind. <laughs> um, no, it was like my brother would get me a CD a lot of times. He would he would buy me a CD. It would be a lot of local bands going buying their stuff and we there were in and then um I, I didn't really download i downloaded a lot of like it was i feel like all the stuff i would download off of kazaa or whatever would be like me first in the gimme gimme <laughs> <laughs> shit like that um but then it was it was still going to east hill records in pensacola and and hoping that they had like uh, fucking cries from the past or cries of the past by under oath <laughs> And then finally being like, oh, man, I'm going to have to go to the Christian record store. A lot of – dude, honestly, we – a lot of – would buy a lot of that that genre at the Christian um, bookstore. Yeah. Yeah. It's – it's yeah. All, I'm fascinated by that. Like I'd love to see a documentary about Tooth and Nail Records, like this parallel kind of scene that was happening at the same time that did overlap in, in a lot of ways, especially in Florida. Yeah, and everybody – it was like all a lie. I remember <laughs> – <laughs> The only way we were never a Christian band, we were like, no, fuck that. But like, if you wanted to play a show, like a good show, you it had it was always at a church, yeah. And like, you just would have to pray ahead of time. It was so uncomfortable. <laughs> You'd have to go there and pray with them before they let you play. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's like a pray to play show. Yeah, pray to play. <laughs> 
Dude, totally. That would be the name of the movie, Pray to Play. <laughs> Pray to Play. That's, yeah. We, we've come up with a couple different movie ideas already in this conversation, I think. Yeah, we got to stick together. We got to stick together. Yeah. <laughs> We're going places, kid. Um, but, like, yeah, it, it's it's funny how, it, you know, because Toronto is different, but, like, talking to people that grew up, you know, once again, especially in, in the part that you're of the country, U.S. country, I mean, that you're growing up in. I'm in Canada, by the way. I should throw that out there so I don't sound oh, too yeah. weird. Um, but, like, you know, it felt like that that, you know, is such a part of just, like, the culture in general that it was – it seeped into, like, even alternative culture. And maybe it looked like – you know, and, and and I don't know. This was probably felt this way as a secular person looking from a distance, but it always felt like it was almost like a recruiting thing. Yeah, it kind of was. I, it's still confusing to me that era because so many of those bands, I feel like, denounced it. They like mm-hmm. nowadays they go, "Oh, it was a lie," or like, "Oh, yeah. we don't, we're not actually Christian anymore." And it's like, cool. So you went and got like a six album record deal and <laughs> toured around. And I'm sure. Had sex with very uh, questionably aged women at Cornerstone Festival or yeah. whatever. Yeah, and, and now you're like, oh, guess what? We're actually not a Christian band. So it's it's almost like I would prefer they're all like preachers now or something like that. But yeah, it was, like, it was all real. Like it wasn't yeah. a pose at all. It was like, yeah, uh, I, I find it either way kind of disturbing. I think like you know, knowing that it was a bit of an act, you're right. Like it's definitely much more cynical and slightly evil, especially the underage stuff at potentially cornerstone. But, (laughs) but at the same time, I think it's also like, uh, imagine they had like militarized an entire generation of hot topic kids into like religious voters now. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what's so funny, man. It's like so many of those, those scene kids are now like uh, Trumpy kind of, like it's it's weird you you'd think like these kids who like used to straighten their hair and wear girl jeans would be more uh like on the progressive cool side but yeah. it's it's funny like going back home a lot of those kids that I used to play shows with in bands are now like super redneck trump guys it's 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 weird how that worked out it's almost like uh like well it's a group think that people get caught up in in punk rock in general you know in hardcore yeah. in general and it's just which way do you break yeah, yeah, totally. It's like, did you go the tough guy route? <laughs> yeah. Or did you go the silly idiot route? Yeah. Or, or did you go like the, the person who listened to too much propaganda route? Or did you go the person that <laughs> right. listened to too much misfits route? <laughs> or like, you know, I much prefer going, listen to too much propaganda is where I'm at. So same, me too, dude. In eighth grade, I did a, um, a report. They were supposed to like do a report on a song or something. And so mm-hmm. I brought in, uh, I can't remember the name of the propaganda song. But uh, it was a propaganda song, very political. It was like oh, nation states. Oh, that, yeah, nation states. That's yeah. It. Um, and I remember thinking, okay, I'll just play this song and then I'll describe what it's about. And then I played it, and then I was like, this song is about how messed up. Um, dang, dang it! <laughs> I just kind of realized, like, I actually had no idea what it was about. <laughs> I, I think it only really hit me in the last few years what that song's about. And, like, you know, when you break down all the lyrics, like, they're such a great band. You know, like, so many people talk about Rage Against the Machine, but, like, here's a band that's, like, sampling Noam Chomsky things and, like, telling you to read Howard Zinn books. It's just, it was just, like, what a great band for, like, a young person to stumble upon. I know, man. They're cool. And you get the weaker thans. And you get the weaker thans later on, so you can grow older with them, too. All right. Um, where did you go from there? Like, as far as like local sh- playing local shows, like you said, you toured a little bit where, how far did you tour out? We would just tour the Southeast. So our route would be, you know, Birmingham, Atlanta, Nashville, Memphis, Charlotte, North Carolina, Greensboro, uh, somewhere in South Carolina, and Tallahassee, Jacksonville. And you mentioned like the band changed styles, but did you ever put out any releases? What was that? You mentioned the band changed styles at different times, but did you ever put out any releases? Oh, yeah. Oh, we did. We put out an EP (laughs) called Love Has Failed to Show, which is uh, (laughs) embarrassing. But I I think it's true. It rings true, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah, uh, we we put out an EP and and, and then we recorded like a more professional couple of songs 
in a studio where I had really learned how to scream at that point. I was really, everybody was really impressed with how I had uh, actually learned how to scream the right way and stuff. And it was a good moment for me. And, and then this, um, this dude who was running this label out of his mom's basement said, uh, I'd love to work with you guys. And by then we were a little bit older and, um, I think we were just kind of like, I don't know if we want to do this for anymore, like forever, you know, like we, we kind of decided, you know, it's funny. I was just talking about this with Clay, who's my directing partner. He co-directed my special with me, but we were, grew up together and we, we, we were both in that band. And our buddy who was the drummer was like a few years older than us. He was like well out of high school. And, uh, we, all the other guys were like 16, 17. And we were kind of just like, do you guys not want to do this anymore? And he was trying to get us to go meet him at band practice. And we were like, yeah, we don't want to do this. And so we all quit <laughs> the band and we're like, sorry, dude, we're not coming. We're not going to be the band anymore. And then he was like, what? And then <laughs> we were just talking about it recently. Like, did we ruin his life? <laughs> like, <laughs> because now me and you are out in LA and like, we're still making stuff together. But what, ha- like, what is he up? You know what I mean? Like that was his thing. His, <laughs> He was a grown-up. He was an adult at that point. <laughs> um, so. But he had to know when he put a bunch of kids in his band that one day they might grow up and, and, and leave the nest. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You'd hope. That's true. <laughs> but that's still uh, – well, that's another thing I want to talk to you about. In the special, the music's fantastic, like incredible songs there. Um, what, like, what are the influences into those songs? Like, there's so many different styles there. Did you go in with different influences? Like, did the joke come before the song or the song come before the joke? Like, how did that process work? Um, yeah, those songs, a lot of them I had written sincerely, like, and I had, uh, recorded them in a less kind of synthesizer-y way, you know, just with a guitar and a bass Mm -hmm. and some drums. Um, and then, uh, the lyrics, you know, like, weren't super funny and and i listened back and i was singing more with like my natural singing voice on those demos and i just felt like so embarrassed by it and uh then my friend asked me to do a show where he was like but don't do stand-up like your your section of the show you're not allowed to do stand-up you have to think of something else and so i was like oh maybe i'll like think of um a song he goes oh no it's an it's supposed to be an ad your section of the show needs to be a fake advertisement for something it's like oh okay so the fake advertisement was to go out on a date with me, but it's a warning. And so then I would, I changed one of the songs to be partied to death, which is the song about my mom drinking herself to death. And the warning is going like, um, if you hang out with me, this might come up, you know what I mean? (laughs) So just be ready. Um, and then I, Mm -hmm. I pretty quickly, that was a few years ago, kind of was like, Oh, cause people took out their phones. They started filming me do that. And that never happened to me before. And I was like, Oh shit, maybe I should I should start doing musical comedy more like more seriously. So I kind of revisited a lot of my songs and, and changed a lot of the lyrics, you know, like, um, and yeah, so it was all music first. And then the, the joke came afterwards. It's funny. I just had Mike Watt on the podcast recently and he talked about how he calls it the movement, but just punk broadly (laughs) term, but like how so much of it at the beginning was about humor and like, it was obviously very serious and like addressing serious real things, but there was always like a humorous side to it. And you like, you, you look at the dead Kennedys and you look at even black flag and these bands, like there is that kind of sense of humor and the period of punk that, you know, both you and I kind of came up in, you know, my, it was either super goofy stuff like very silly or it was like uber serious, like no humor at all. And yeah. so I don't like, I, f- I find the songs in the show, like so punk in like that Mike Watt kind of way where it's like, you're, you're, you're dressing deadly serious things. Like even insecurities, like, like sexual insecurities <laughs> and things like that. But there's like a humor to it that that's not like ever silly, but like, I don't know. Just, I, it's oh, punk. Well, that's cool. Thanks, man. I mean, yeah, and all of them are fundamentally kind of punk songs, like Dumb in Love, like mm-hmm. the original, it's a song that I sing about wishing that I was just kind of stupid and how much better that would be um, right now, and, and politically at least. And That song originally was just a full pop punk song. There was, It was just a really upbeat pop punk song, and then 
when we recorded it for my album, we just changed it and slowed it down. But yeah, I, I think that there's something so authentic about and vulnerable about a lot of the punk music that I really love and how a lot of the times these singers aren't really, they don't have the vocabulary to articulate what they're trying to say in a super metaphorical or poetic way. And, and that, in that bluntness, right? Removing the metaphor is so comedic, but also so emotional and vulnerable. And, and I, I feel like that's what I aim to do as a musician. So, uh, it, like when the band wound down and you, you both moved out to LA, was the original plan like to do what you're doing now? Or did you want to kind of start music out there? Or like, what was the vision going out West? Um, no, I wanted to be an actor. I, I had moved, I had met some guy in Florida who was like, who worked at a special effects company in LA. And he was like, come out to LA. I'll give you a job as a PA. And then I moved out to LA right when I turned 18 and he never answered my phone call. Oh, fuck. And, and then uh, I got a job working at the skate shop and was going to acting classes and pretty quickly kind of realized like I don't belong in this like acting person world. And mm-hmm. and um, Clay then moved out and then another guy from Alabama moved out and then we met another guy who played drums. So we started playing in this punk band around town called Tooks. T-O-O-K-S, which is a terrible band name, and nobody ever said it right. But uh, oh, and I guess it's also a hat in Canada as a toque. Or, well, a toque, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's spelled just like that. <laughs> but um, so we would play around, and and uh, we, we just had like a really hard time getting adjusted. We were so stupid. We talked way too much in between songs, and we just like we didn't know how to be cool we wanted really badly to be accepted by like the smell the kids at the smell yes. and stuff yeah and like the new garage rock wave like it was kind of during the the break of like ty siegel and all those guys and we just were like we gotta figure out how to exist amongst these people you know and then um what really happened was uh, my mom died and when she died i she left me like 5,000 bucks and uh, I started doing uh, – I rented that theater. And so me and the guys would just play little dumb videos and sometimes we'd play music. And eventually we just stopped playing music and just started only doing comedy and mm-hmm. found that we kind of – it made more sense for us to be doing that than uh, to be trying to get in at the smell. It's such a it, like that smell scene. Like even going out there when we first went out there, like I guess which would have been a couple years earlier, it was so impenetrably cool. <laughs> like it just yeah. felt like, uh, and and also they had a they had banned hardcore bands for a long time. Like they would not book hardcore bands, and so there was like a real like divide. Once again, probably with people that were offended that you called the troop power violence, but uh, there was like right. they were all like, oh fuck that place. They don't like hardcore. They don't like punk. Um, and it was like a separate scene for a while. Yeah, yeah. The the hardcore scene, dude. Coming, going out to LA, I never. I don't think I've still to this day been to a hardcore show that wasn't in a garage or inside of a house. <laughs> yes. I don't know where they do hardcore shows in LA. Uh, they, uh, I guess, at that point, it was the Echo, like the small room at the Echo would have stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, like we, first time we went out there, we were playing like where it was still like where you could have a warehouse party. Like obviously gentrification has ruined punk rock venues forever. Uh, oh yeah. Everywhere. Uh, but yeah, yeah that, it's hard. <laughs> it's weird. Yeah. That, that was what we would do most of the time too, is play at these really cool warehouse shows. And we would often go down to Orange County. We found like Orange County was like more similar to, um, where we were from and we would be playing like noise shows, but our band was like kind of just like a garage blues punk band did you guys record yeah we recorded a bunch actually we have a ton of recordings like i'm sure if you like looked it up on soundcloud there'd probably be recordings of uh, our band somewhere the tux i'm definitely gonna that's gonna be my first thing i do when i hang up with the phone off with you <laughs> check out that because yeah like it, it's you know you mentioned that garage rock revival kind of thing that i guess started in san francisco but it was also in la like michael cronin and stuff was in la and and it just yeah it was just like so much great stuff happening um at that time like it was like uh just you know a lot of cool bands like the ocs like ty like just a lot of great stuff 
Yeah, and what's so funny is like when I, when I started, I had been doing comedy for a few years. I started seeing those those guys popping up at just like watching comedy shows, and I was yeah. like, "Oh wow, okay, that's funny here." This, you know, and now I I know a lot of those guys mm-hmm. guys now a little bit, and it's just so funny, like like um, how it, how it kind of flipped around, you know. Well, now's the time to get the band back together. You're in now. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> now you got all the slots you could you could handle for the, for the show. <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, growing up, what kind of comedy stuff were you into? I thought. I mean, the first thing that I ever, I, the first thing that ever made me like die laughing that was professional, like comedy, comedy that wasn't like a Jim Carrey movie or. Austin Powers or something mm-hmm. was um, Eddie Murphy in Delirious doing a, a bit about the ice cream man coming to town. <laughs> like that bit just made me, I couldn't, I'd never seen stand up comedy where I, it was like that funny before. And uh, a lot of the other stuff hasn't aged well at all, but the, <laughs> yeah. that one joke is timeless. <laughs> and then it, and, you know, and then I liked like Mitch Hedberg and, through him found out about Zach Galifianakis and Maria Bamford and um, those people. And yeah, but you know, I mean the gateway I think was probably Ace Ventura. Like that was like the beginning of comedy for me. What about kids in the hall? Was that shown at all? Uh, I know it was shown on TV in America at different times, but did you see that at all growing up? Oh yeah. Kids in the hall would play right after school on comedy central. Because I, I, that's a, like, you know, obviously you're doing something completely different, but that's sort of the sensibility I kind of saw, like the, the honesty and the kind of vulnerability that they they were bringing. And that was growing up like here. That was our uh, that was our Saturday Night Live. Right. Yeah. Kids in the Hall was great. No, I loved Kids in the Hall. And I, I sometimes will see Dave Foley walking around. I'm always I am. I'm so starstruck. <laughs> <laughs> I think news radio is kind of like an underrated TV show. Yeah, dude, me too. Uh, I'll go back and watch that. Uh, you know, anytime, anytime it's on TV, I can't change the channel. Oh, it's a good. It holds up. You got Joe Rogan in there too. <laughs> I know. Who would have? Who would have thought that that dude would become the political influencer? All right. That he is like that dude. That guy. That guy. Yeah. So funny. Um, are you ever going to do bands? You think again? Seriously? Like as a like, I love the music in the show. Like, are you? Would you ever want to do like? you know, less of a comedy band, but you know, a band that toured and kind of did that side of things. I don't know about tour. Touring is tricky for me. I don't love, uh, I don't mind it. It's just, I've never done, I've never been a person who's ever been able to sell a damn ticket to anything. So like, (laughs) it's, I just wonder what it would be like to sell, to be able to sell tickets. And if it would change my approach kind of to, uh, touring and, and stuff like that. But, um, it's nice now to play music because I, I just go with a guitar and sometimes a keyboard and then the rest of it is like a backing track. But I think for my next record, which will probably be like 50-50 comedy and and then comedy music and then fifty the other 50% more like sincere music, mm-hmm. I want to have like a real band and I, I want to, you know, really think about the presentation of the music and more of a fun very much a a, a, a musician's mu- music kind of way you know mm-hmm. um a lot of the reason the music now is the way that it sounds the way that it sounds is because i would feel uncomfortable like playing to a backing track of like an acoustic guitar yeah you know so i i wanted it to be like pretty synthetic sounding so it's okay you know but it's it's great because it does have that new wave vibe it's got kind of like a pulp vibe it's got like uh i don't know it makes it seem like like you're saying like on an acoustic guitar it would sound awkward but here it sounds so grandiose the way you did it thanks dude thank you yeah i I was just trying to think of you know i don't know how i wanted it to just feel theatrical Mm -hmm. i guess and and uh yeah it just kind of worked out that way um, at some point down the line, would you come back to this thing for a part two? Totally, yeah. Uh, before you go, though, I have to ask you one thing, one joke in the special, and uh, stands out to me, stood out to me. Did you specifically pick Fugazi to troll <laughs> emo kids? No, I had tried 700 other bands. <laughs> yeah. I used to say Rites of Spring. <laughs> That's what it seemed like. It definitely, okay. 
and people didn't know who that was. <laughs> and then when I would say Fugazi, it was a dude. I one time I can't remember where I was. I was out to on tour somewhere out of town, and I sat there saying like, "Who actually knows this genre?" And like, I, you know, because a lot of people would say like they want me to say Taking Back Sunday or something like that. Yeah. But I, that doesn't that they didn't invent emo like, and I don't want to. You know what I mean? So it was a whole dialogue. <laughs> The truth is, it, it started with uh, emo was invented in the '80s, and then I would just do the bit. But then people would go, "Well, no, it wasn't emo. It was taking back Sunday." And like, no, 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 it was. It's it, it's existed since way before that. And then I was like, "Emo was invented in the '80s with Rites of Spring," and then people would go, "What the? Who the fuck is that?" But then if I changed it to Fugazi, people would go, "Oh, I think I've heard of Fugazi," you know. <laughs> So it it hurts every time I have to watch the special and I see me say Fugazi, but I feel like it was a band that is an easier pull for people, so I say Fugazi. Uh, when I I went into this podcast, you know, loving you and loving what you've done, but uh, that that is just increased tenfold by that answer to that question. <laughs> it was I don't know, like, are you familiar with the Patton Oswalt first record they did on Sub Pop? Oh, maybe. Okay, he's got this one joke in it where he's talking about growing up in Virginia and how he was so close to DC and how, and he's like, I could have been in DC and I could have been seeing the bad brains playing with Fugazi and Minor Threat. And it always bothered me because I'm like, those bands never fucking played together like that. That never happened like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I hope mine's not as extreme. No, no, yours it wasn't. But that's why, but your answer to it is like, Oh, it just it, it warms the cockles of my heart because I can, <laughs> I can just totally see going through that thought process and, and that's like the sign of someone that truly loves this music. Right, dude. It was it was painful. It was difficult. <laughs> and I, if you do Wikipedia Fugazi, there is the word emo does come up. Yeah, so. yeah. No, you're right. No, I, I definitely everything you said is just it, as I say, couldn't have been more perfect as far as an answer for that stuff goes. <laughs> What do you have to answer to it to Ian Mackay? Oof, I would, I would be afraid. I want, uh, I, I don't even know if I'd ever want to even talk to Ian Mackay. I feel like, I feel like our personalities, my <laughs> personality is so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Some, uh, taking the guy from Taking Back Sunday, Adam Lazara, yeah, did um, hit me, uh, say something to me on Twitter like a couple years ago. Because I'm 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 making fun of a Taking Back Sunday lyric, <laughs> in uh in that like if you slip my throat I'd say thank you for touching me. That's like a similar lyric to a Taking Back Sunday song. And he tweeted at me like, "What's this? What's this song? <laughs> and, or what's this joke?" And I was like, "It's from a place of love." Because I, I've already I had already been in trouble with Mark Hop- with Blink One Eighty Two because I used to do a bit years ago about uh, Miss You that you know that Blink One Eighty Two song. <laughs> yeah. And um, Mark Hoppus found out about it, and he but he loved it, and he was like, make, it was making fun of Tom DeLonge's voice, and <laughs> so he of course he, loved it. Yeah, he was like, this is really funny, man. Let's if I if I'm ever it, basically the the end of that story is that he came with uh, my other pal Jonah Ray and played um we we played Miss You as a surprise at a show that I did in L.A. and it was like. <laughs> He came on stage and played the bass and sang his whole part. And it was fun, psycho. And then we played dan- we played like an impromptu "Damn It" cover. Oh, that's awesome! Well, like you know, you'd hope they have a good sense of humor, but I couldn't imagine having to do like comedy, especially about punk, to Ian MacKay, like Henry Rollins, like right. just like the most mean mugging group of old hardcore dudes ever. Uh, right, dude. I mean. <laughs> They truly just, I mean, come on, guys. <laughs> like, no. They, they got to laugh sometime. Maybe Danzig's there, too. Oh, geez. Of- My buddy, uh, his name is Buddy, has to fix Danzig's laptop every now and again. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> the stories that he tells. And it's like, it's like one of, it's not a laptop. Sorry. It's a old uh, Mac, iMac. And it's like one of those, like, see-through ones like the color yes it's like that's the how old it is <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well you know hopefully since there's reunions they can afford to buy some new computers 
Yeah, I hope so. That's the that's the dream. Uh, oh, this as I say, this has been incredible and and such a huge thrill for me. And anytime you want to come back, the door is always open here. Please, dude, this is so much fun. I'm such a big fan of you too, so I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you, Wit, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Wit will be back for future episodes. Uh, I really hope. And how? How wild is that? That he used fucked up his entrance music for for his troop. I did not see that coming at all. <laughs> and, and how great was my reaction hearing that for the for the second time because we had to record the intro twice. So anyway, uh, here we are. Uh, that was awesome. I really enjoyed that conversation, and I feel very much at ease with that response to that Fugazi joke thing. That really bothered me. That really, that was the one thing when I saw the comedy special. I'm like, ah. Oh! Fugazi joke, and then hearing that he has also wrestled with it just made me love the guy even more. So hopefully we'll be doing a lot more stuff. That was on A24, and uh, yeah, check it out. Really strongly recommend it. We've got time now, so if you're sitting around looking for something to watch, definitely watch that. Speaking of time, we got time enough at last to put up another podcast episode this week. And why don't we go... Somewhere completely different for the next one. Why don't we go to, uh, yeah, this is good. Well, next week we're going to have someone on the show that I guess you kind of have to lay a lot of the blame for creating this genre on, or certainly popularizing this genre on. Next week on the show, one of the uh, greatest songwriters of all time, in my opinion, because he's written some of my favorite jams, Glenn Matlock is on the show. Glenn Matlock, of course, from the Spectres, from the Rich Kids, and of course, from the Sex Pistols. And Glenn will be on the show. We get we talk a lot of a lot of cool stuff on the episode coming up. It's a it's an interesting one. And certainly, you know, I've heard a lot of interviews with Glenn Matlock over the years. I've heard a lot of interviews with a lot of people from the Sex Pistols. I think there's like, you know, nothing tawdry or things like that, but you know, the usual turn out of punk fodder, which is where we're finding about influences and connections that, you know, you don't normally talk about with people, you know, like when, when have you heard Glenn Matlock get a chance to talk about Cox bar, you know, not very often. So tune in next week. You get to hear it. All right. That's it. Everyone. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I hope everyone's doing okay under the circumstances. Uh, we're going to be launching something, uh, maybe tomorrow. Tomorrow, I'm going to be putting out some word tomorrow night about it if we do launch it. Just a test one tomorrow, and then we'll see uh, what else comes of it. But I'm going to be, uh, as I say, I'm, I'm going to be making sure that I keep uh, the lights on here and keep the entertainment flowing out of here as a place for you to come and just chill for a little bit. Chill and hang out. And so we're going to be trying to figure out ways to, to do different things with this thing from home. Because <laughs> we're all at home. Ah, <laughs> oh, that's it. Uh, everyone, uh, stay safe. Uh, stay in and make your own culture. Uh, sign your organ donor cards if you can inside. Um, stay inside. Stay inside if you can. Definitely stay inside if you can. And that's it. I'll see you next week on the show. Thanks for listening. Love you, everyone. Bye. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.